Welcome back to another web uh, gift from adversity. My name is Julia Love. Today we have a wonderful guest, Jamie Blanco. And a gift from adversity podcast is same title as my book, which is a gift from adversity, which is a book that I wrote and published in 2020. And a gift from adversity subtitle is overcoming sexual abuse, domestic violence, and bullying and homelessness. And this year, 2022, I wanted to start a podcast to feature not only the adversity and normalizing the conversation about difficulties and challenges in our lives, but to share the tools that people use to overcome and also a gift that came from the adversity. Before I introduce my guest, I also wanted to announce today is my episode 50. And I really appreciate all the guests who have been on my show, A Gift from Adversity, since the beginning of this year, from all over the world. And this has been my manifestation, my goals. And ever since I published my book, A Gift from Adversity, which is available on Amazon, I always wanted to create a platform where people can share these challenges and my goal is for people to not feel alone when they are going through the challenges. So let's invite tonight's guest, Jamie Blanco. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Jury. Thank you for having me. It's so good to see you. Great to see you too. Thank you so much for coming to my podcast, Again from Adversity. So please tell our audience who you are and then what you do. Okay, I do a lot of things. So my name is JB Blanco. Um, I'm from the I'm living in the uh, Boston area. And I'm sort of a jack of all trades. I was a journalist for 15 years. Uh, I went to Emerson College. I was um, a morning news producer in Washington DC for six years. Um, I worked at WNEW where we won a number of uh, awards. Uh, including an Edward R. Murrow Award for Best Newscast, which is, uh, it was amazing. Um, I also worked at WBZ News Radio. Um, and from there, uh, here in Boston, so from there I started expanding a little bit. And now I'm an actress and a writer. And I host a entertainment podcast called The Hub on Hollywood on iHeartRadio. And I met you on set, Jerry. Great, thank you so much. And then can you tell us about you being a writer? Yes, um, so uh, I have put together a book. It's a very personal uh, passion project of mine. Um, and it's right here, it's being published tomorrow, which is super exciting. Uh, it's called Hope for the Hopeless. Yay! Yeah, I know, right? Uh, how, how one man fought the world's deadliest brain tumor on his terms and won. And that person is my father. Um, and that's what we're talking about today. But in essence, he got sick uh, when I was a little girl. And the doctors gave him no hope of survival. And instead of saying, you know, going home and dying like they told him to, he decided to turn to a very holistic approach um, you know, diet and supplements and faith and mental, you know, uh, focus techniques and things like that. He ended up living eight years. They gave him 17 weeks to live. He lived eight years. And um, 
that was a miracle. Many doctors have said it's a miracle that he should not have lived that long and that they could not explain why he lived that long. So he he started documenting his journey um, of self-treatment. Um, and unfortunately, he did not finish it. And he did pass eventually in 2003 after an incredible fight and an incredible life. Um, but 15 years after his death, my mother found the book, gave it to me, and now as an adult and a journalist, I've, been, I've spent the last five years putting this book together um, and not only sharing my father's words, but packing it with the latest research, um, inspiration, inspirational interviews, and things and tools that people can use today um, who are facing a dire diagnosis. Can you show me the back? Can you show us the back of the book? I know it's it's hard to um, tell the audience who's listening just audio only. Can you describe what it is? Uh, sure. So I can I can read the synopsis here for you. Uh, so Jimmy Blanco was one of the longest living survivors of the world's deadliest brain cancer, and he defied the odds without traditional medicine. In 1995, he was diagnosed with a glioblastoma multiforme grade four and given less than four months to live. From day one, he rejected chemotherapy and radiation and the doctor's death sentence for him. He self-treated with natural medicine, radically altered his diet, practiced visualization and other mental focus techniques and had a healthy faith in God. He fought eight incredible years against the tumor that doesn't quit. Jimmy began writing a book about his journey, but sadly did not finish it. So 15 years after his writing, he gave it to, 15 years after his death, his widow Elizabeth found the unfinished book he'd been writing and gave it to their daughter, Jamie. Now as an adult and award-winning journalist, Jamie knew what she had to do, complete her father's work. She investigated, she has investigated the biggest factors that contributed to her father's miraculous remission and done a deep dive into the latest brain cancer research both the great and the lacking. This multi-generational memoir spans more than 20 years and tells the story of heartache, miracles, the power of nature and faith, and the bonds of love that disease and death cannot break. And the main theme of this book, uh, Jury, is no one has the right to tell you to go home and die. Very, very powerful. Thank you so much. So can we tell our audience just a little bit before we go into the adversity and then the topic about our podcast, how I kind of encouraged you and pushed you to finish. <laughs> so Jerry played a really big part and there's a shout out to you in the acknowledgements. So oh, no way. I can't wait for you to read it. Um, oh, I, I just want to say thank you again, because uh, like I said, I met Jerry on set um, of a really cool production that we can't talk about and it's coming out later this year. Um, but I have been, as I said, working on this book for the last five years and I just hadn't been able to finish. I hadn't been able to get it across the finish line. Um, and there was so much going on with my, in my life with, with work and my kids. And when I met Jury, I told her my story and she started telling me about her book, A Gift from Adversity. And we started sharing our stories. And she said, you know what? I, I have a publisher. If you can finish it, I'll recommend you. And you gave me a deadline, Jury. And that's what I needed. I am a journalist. Uh, you know, that that is what I need in my heart. Um, just left to my own desire, uh, 
devices I meander. So Jury gave me a deadline. She pushed me, she encouraged me, and I was able to finish the book, uh, get in touch with the, the publisher Book Logics, and the rest is history. So I thank you for that, Jury. I am so happy. And I was a tough one to push you, but I asked, remember I asked you your favorite number? Yeah. Yeah, and then you gave me a deadline based on my on my favorite numbers, and I'm like, yes, yes. absolutely. Yes. And I'm so happy and I'm proud. And is it going to be published tomorrow? It is. So June 22nd. Um, so if you're watching this, you know now or then, uh, you can go online and buy the book. It's going to be available on Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, and BookLogics.com. Wow, exciting! Yes, I'm very excited. <laughs> And it looks beautiful. The cover looks beautiful. Shout out to my our friend Rebecca Covers yep. and Ukraine, right? Uh, yes, we were just I was just talking to my husband about that yesterday, how we hope that she's doing well. Um, and maybe you and I can check in on her. But uh, Rebecca Covers um, in Ukraine did design both of our covers and yes. she did an amazing job. Just a spectacular. Yes. So Take a look, there's um, brain scans in the back and then the two white roses, which is, you know, very significant to my father. He, he really loved white roses and felt that, you know, the, those flowers held the most spiritual light. And it just it just had a, a really significant meaning to him. So to have that on the cover of his book uh, means a lot to me as well. I'm just getting goosebumps everywhere, just watching the cover. And you holding the book on your hand i i'm just like so happy i i feel like i'm publishing another book <laughs> <laughs> you kind of are you kind of are you you, you helped me so much jerry and oh my gosh and we were on a crazy set and then like we were just like talking here and there between the cuts and then rolling <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> between movie sets yeah as we were jumping from movie set to movie set did you finish yet did you finish i'm like yes i'm almost there i'm almost there but you know sometimes when you have those goals and the visions and sometimes you need that kind of push and i had those mentor as well master report uh he gave me the deadline and then i was i i was working on this book for like five years and then he said can you finish in 30 days and then mm -hmm. i set a timer and I remember having a meeting with Master Rapport from Personal Best Karate, and he encouraged me to have a deadline, and that's why that's what I did too. So thank you and shout out to Master Rapport. Yes, and um, Jerry, this might even give you more shivers. Oh my gosh, he gave you thirty days. I think you gave me three weeks. But anyways, this this might um, also give you shivers. So this is the final product. This is what the, the the book looks like now. This is what the book looks like when I found it. When my mother found it in a closet, it was in this big leather portfolio case with water damage because it had been through several hurricanes. And this was the only copy, you know, that that existed that we had. And it was just paper copy. It was just hundreds of pages. See, it says um, hope for the hopeless there. Oh, my gosh. Hundreds of pages that he wrote and so when i found this i just remember filling with purpose like feeling myself filling up with purpose and oh i i took it to a kinko's and i just had everything scanned 
into the computer and digitized. And I started working off of that. And, you know, my dad, he, he, he put this book together, but he was probably dyslexic. He had a lot of trouble reading and writing, but he never gave up. He was absolutely relentless. I remember him working day after day um, on his computer, scouring the early internet, setting up interviews with nutritionists and other experts, you know, doing everything in his power to educate himself um, so that he could put this book together. So the first two years that I was working on this, it was just working on his grammar and his spelling and, and, and putting together what he had created. And the rest of it was me working on my part and, and, up, and putting the latest research and things in there that can help people uh, today. So it's a double book. It's a, it's a double memoir. It's um, got a little bit of everything for everyone. and It's got inspiration and practical tools. Thank you so much, Jamie, for sharing this. And as I said, today is my episode 50, which is a pretty big milestone for me. I'm honored to be here on your 50th. Exactly. And then when I started this podcast, to be honest, I didn't know who was going to come on my podcast, who is willing to share their adversities. And then I just... I'm so speechless that I've had guests from literally all over the world and all over United States and Canada. I'm so blown away. Unfortunately, the diversity is universal language like music. And I didn't realize how much of the connection that I have created over the past six months since I started this podcast and then how much I have learned and how much I was healed by listening to guest stories. So today, Jamie, would you please tell us your adversity? Mm -hmm. I I will. So, you know, we talked a lot about my father's part of this um, and what what he went through and and how relentless and incredible he was um, in putting this book together and trying to survive. Um, But, you know, the, the, the other perspective that's in this book and that I feel was the hardest part for me to, to write was, you know, my part of it. Um, so my father got sick when I was nine years old and it just, it came out of left field. You know what I mean? Perfect little life. Um, I have two younger brothers and we lived in a house in Miami. So I'm Cuban American and I grew up in Miami and we lived in this little townhouse. Uh, behind the Florida Turnpike, there was like a toll booth in our backyard. And my whole family lived in here. It was me, my mom, my dad, my brothers, my grandmother, my grandfather, and my uncle. We all lived together in this little house. And, you know, and it was crazy, but it was happy. And for that to change overnight. So I remember that my father worked a lot. He was a medical, um, he was a uh, respiratory therapist. He worked in a number of hospitals and he worked insane hours. He worked like a hundred hours a week um, to try to pay for our private school. He wanted to send all of us to the best possible schools and he did as much as he could to provide for us. He, he loved us so much, um, but he was running himself ragged. He only ate junk food and he ate, he was working these insane hours and not getting any sleep and, you know, and it, it finally caught up with him. And I remember the night that he got sick, the, the, the night of his first uh, seizure, 
he was going into work. And I remember having this horrible feeling, this horrible, horrible feeling just coming over me. And I was clawing onto him. I'm like, Dadden, don't go. I used to call him Dadden. I don't know. I didn't, it was, we never called him Daddy or Dad. It was Dadden. I'm like, don't go, don't go. Something terrible is going to happen. Something terrible is going to happen. And he's like, you know, I got to go to work. I got to go to work. And he was feeling awful. And um, on his way in to work, while he was driving, he had a grand mal seizure behind the wheel of the van that he was driving. And he crashed into a, a um, it was very, very lucky. He crashed into a statue of Buddha in somebody's front yard. Um, and he, it's a miracle that he didn't die, that he didn't crash head on in this tiny road that he was on. But anyways, so my adversity was waking up the next day and hearing, you know, Dan's been in a car accident. And I thought that he was okay. I'm like, okay, well, you know, he's at the hospital. He's going to be fine. You know, Den's having surgery. Okay, he's at the hospital. He's going to be fine. And he came back and from the hospital. He had this big, giant scar on his head. I had no idea why. I'm like, oh, he was in a car accident. And us kids, he was home with us kids. So us three bad kids who were loud and always fighting. And, you know, he was very not himself. He was very much not himself. And he kept telling us, you got to be quiet, you got to be quiet. Daddy's head hurts, you know. And then finally, I guess he couldn't take it anymore. And my parents hadn't told us yet. And he pulled us all together and he started crying. And he's like, I have cancer. And it was the most terrifying thing I have ever heard in my entire life. When you're nine years old, you don't hear your parents cry. You know what I mean? And, and the way that he kind of yelled and cried and told us something so devastating. I just, I remember going to my room and first I called my mother and I screamed at her. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? And then I was just in my room crying and praying. And I had like this out of body experience. Like it was just so intense that I just kind of came out of my body. <laughs> and I was looking down at myself, like crying in the corner and, you know, and just praying. I was praying that, you know, God would take me instead. So it was awful <laughs> and my life transformed overnight. So we went from, you know, this very happy life to is my father going to die and what is happening and not being able to understand that. And one of the extra challenges there was a, my, <laughs> there was not a lot of communication. You know, I was nine years old. We didn't understand what was happening and no one was telling us what was happening and be my father had a lot of seizures after the surgery. The first surgery left permanent damage so that he would have these really terrifying seizures while he was home alone with us. And I was the oldest. So it was my job to make sure that he was okay, to hold him down while he was having the seizure and then make sure that he got his medication and, you know, and to take care of my brothers and to take care of my father, you know, starting at a young age. So, it was difficult. It was very difficult. But then I got to see him standing up for himself and transforming everything that he did and getting better and getting miraculously better. Um, the tough part with cancer, though, is and with his story in particular, you know, you can buy more time. 
You can buy more time for yourself. You treat yourself holistically, mind, body, and soul. But at the end, we ultimately go back to God. You know, we, we ultimately die. We, this life comes to an end. And especially with cancer and, and with glioblastoma in particular, um, it's such an aggressive cancer that he was able to buy himself time, but he was still sick. You know what I mean? So he was able to keep the cancer from coming back from an ex for an extended amount of time. Now, this cancer normally recurs within months, if not weeks. It's extremely aggressive. And especially without any kind of mainstream medical intervention, it's a death sentence. It's an absolute death sentence. But he didn't do that, and he still lived as long as he did. So there was something about what he did for himself. Um, but, you know, seeing that as a child, he would get better, and then he gets sick again. And then he gets better, and then he gets sick again. And then he gets better, and he gets sick again. And it was just very, very difficult to, to go through that as a child, to become essentially the other adult, to become the other parent, and taking care of my brothers, not only my brothers, but my, my father, and, you know, and trying to help the family, and trying to do well in school, and you know, we also had, we also went from our nice private school that my father was working to pay for, and then suddenly we couldn't afford it anymore because he couldn't work, and then being thrust into a public school, which was very bad. We it was it was the ghetto, like La Sauesera, they call it, um, La Sauesera de Miami. Uh, I lived near Eighth Street, and I went to a school in Sweetwater. I went to a middle school in Sweetwater. And it was all gangs and sex and violence. Um, it was not a good place. <laughs> so not only is my father sick, but now I get thrust from my nice school into, you know, this very harsh environment. And there was a lot. There was a lot to process. And then ultimately, my father did pass away when I was 17. So I delayed going to college so that I could help my mother and my brothers and take care of my family um, before I ultimately um, took off to go to Emerson College and, and start my life and start my career. When did you start? What age did you start Amazon? I'm sorry? Uh, what age did you start Amazon College? How old were uh, you? For Emerson? Um, I was 20 when I started at Emerson. So I, you were working? Yeah, so I was working and helping my mom for two and a half years after my father died, I, I stayed. Two and a half, three years. <laughs> so Jamie, first of all, I really appreciate you sharing this story and a lot of things that you said, um, it's really unimaginable for a child to go through that. And then you are 90 years old when this initial, uh, initial accident happened and a cancer discovery of cancer is way too young like 90 years old is just second third grade it it's a brutal it's just such a hard age to mature up so quickly and two little brothers and mm -hmm witnessing your father's seizure as a child. And then I can't believe that you have such um, mature awareness mm -hmm. about out-of-body experience at age nine and then telling your mom, why don't you tell me? Those are like a serious 
like maturity right there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also, um, it, this all started catching up to me, Jury. And in middle school, um, in middle school, I, I write about this a little bit. It's just, the only way that I can explain it is that it was terror in my brain 24 seven every day. I was so riddled with anxiety and depression and unable to sleep and just being afraid of everything. I was afraid of the dark. I was afraid of monsters getting me or, or dark spirits. I was afraid of like every, anything you can imagine, spontaneous combustion, anything you can imagine. I just, I, all day, every day, my brain was going through all of these horrible, horrible things. And I couldn't make it stop to the point that you know, I wanted to kill myself, that I, I wanted to kill myself. And I had these meltdowns and my parents couldn't help me. It's not that they didn't want to, it's they didn't know what was happening with me and they just couldn't because they were, you know, my father was sick, they were helping him, they were helping my brothers. So when I'm having these like meltdowns, I'm just, you know, being put outside or whatever. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's tough. So a lot of what I talk about too is the whole mental health aspect is don't ignore that part, but we'll get to that. Um, but that was also a part of it too. And I had to get through that myself. Um, you know, especially when it got to the point where I wanted to kill myself, when I wanted to hurt myself, that was the biggest wake up call. I was like, that was when I was like 12. That was the biggest wake up call. I'm like, Oh, I got to do something different for myself here. Wow. When you were like nine, 10, 11, 12, so, um, dealing with this um all these challenges did you have did you recall any friends back then that at school or somebody that you were able to share maybe other adults other than family or did you feel more like isolation and didn't know who to tell yeah there was a lot of isolation there wasn't really anybody to confide in i had i had friends but none that would understand this and anytime I tried to share it with any friends, they were just freaked out <laughs> and, you know, and had no way to help me or, or say anything that would, you know, make me feel better. And the adults, you know, were busy. The adults were doing what they had to do to survive and to keep a roof over our heads. And, you know, so I was very, very much alone. I felt like I was alone. I, you know, I, I probably wasn't, you know, totally alone, but you know, at one point, especially in middle school, I tried going to the guidance counselor there at my my middle school. And I was telling her everything that I was going through, everything that I was thinking, everything that I was feeling. And instead of helping me, instead of like getting me seen by a therapist or, you know, evaluated or any kind of intervention whatsoever, she ended up calling my mother and telling her that I had violent tendencies. Because this was around the time of um, Columbine, when Columbine happened, and there was such a high, instead of looking to help kids, they were looking for threats. They were looking for anyone who was a threat. So me that was going through all of this and having all of these dark thoughts, and, you know, and I was writing like, you know, really scary stories and stuff like that. You know, they saw me as a threat and not as somebody that should be helped. So my middle school was horrible. It was horrible. I'm not going to say the name of it, but it was, um, there was no help. There was no help. So I had to get through it myself. Did you get bullied as well or no? No, bullied. no, 
No, I, I, I stayed to myself. Fortunately, I didn't um, encounter much, much bullying. I was pretty quiet and I stuck to myself and I had a couple of like two or three friends and that was it. And I kept my head down and I was able to get through it through middle school without too much, uh, too much trauma. There was just too much going on at home. You know what I mean? I didn't even, I, I don't, I didn't even feel like I was present at school. How about high school? High school got a lot better. <laughs> we, uh, we ended up moving to a better neighborhood. I went to Felix Varela Senior High School and there I started to find ways to channel everything that was inside of me. So I got involved in journalism. I started with um, TV production and I started with the newspaper club and I started writing and writing and writing and that was my outlet and I feel like that's what saved me. Um, so high school was much better and that's where I started meeting the friends that I could talk to and that I could confide in. And that wasn't, that wasn't until like maybe set, um, uh, junior year, like um, 16 years old towards, towards the end of high school. But that's when I started to meet like my core group of friends who were there for me and they were, uh, and they're still there for me to this day. Awesome, that's amazing. So how was the moment that you remember when your father passed away uh, let's see. So that day, we knew that it was coming We at that point. So he had had, at that, towards the end, he had had four surgeries. He had had four brain surgeries, and it eventually spread all over his body, and he was in hospice at home. So on top, you know, he didn't, he didn't die in a hospital or anything. We were taking care of him at home. He was there in the bed. They had nurses come in occasionally, but then I was the one helping my mother move him, feed him, and, you know, at 16 years old, 17 years old. Um, what was your question? Okay, the day he died. Uh, so we knew it was coming, and we'd been preparing for the funeral, which is so weird when the person is still alive, you know, and in the living room on a bed. And I had just had my 17th birthday a couple of weeks before. And my, I remember my friends coming into the house and seeing like the makeshift hospital and then, and then running up the stairs to my room and they were just very shaken. <laughs> and I'm like, this is my life guys. Um, but that day that he did finally pass, my family had been with him. They've been, you know, taking shifts, being with him. And I was out at the bookstore at Barnes and Noble with my soon to be first boyfriend uh, this boy that I liked and was talking to, and uh, his name was Dwight. What's up, Dwight? He's getting married in a couple of months. Um, and we were just hanging out in the bookstore, having um, as good a time as we possibly could. And he was there helping me and distracting me. And I looked at my phone and it was blowing up. I've got all these text messages, come home, come home, come home. So I did, I came home and he had passed. By the time I got there, he was already gone. And my whole family was there, you know, he wasn't alone. His father was there, his brothers, his sister, um, everybody was hugging. I remember seeing all his, you know, remaining living siblings hugging and my poor grandfather. And, you know, I didn't know how to act. I didn't know how to react. I feel like I didn't have emotions at that point. So trying to keep it together for you. But I was emotionless. I felt nothing. 
it's not until many, many years later I was able to process and feel. Wow. But, you know, I was like a zombie getting through that day, getting through the funeral. And my friends were there for me. They were there for me at the funeral, trying to make me happy. And I just focused on them. I focused on my friends. I focused on school. I focused on helping my mom, helping my brothers, and just going and keeping going and keeping going and not thinking about it. But I finally, you know, had the freedom, I guess, the safety all of these years later to process it and actually have those real feelings come out. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Jamie. And thank you so much for answering my questions. I know um, some of the questions might be really tough. Now, I just want to let audience know that when child go through significant amount of trauma, they seem absolutely perfectly okay from outside, but they're not. In my case was one of the example. And later on in my 20s, that when I started to have a therapist explain to me how emotionless I was to the event. And until these days, I'm almost like 46 years old. Um, points in something happens. And then I don't know if that is something that is that was actually a crime against me. I I didn't know until somebody told me and I like just get numb. I just can't connect between the events and emotion. That's like a typical survivor of the child sex abuse. I think in your case, I don't know how to put it. I'm not like psychologist, obviously, but maybe the PTSD part of it or survival mode, like, you know, say, you know, fight or flight or, you know, playing dead. And like, you know, in the way that my therapist, I remember her like, you know, uh, drawing a chart of events and emotion and there's like a huge gap. And then I can't connect them. Mm -hmm. So I feel like maybe that's what you had to do to survive um, when your father passed away. And eventually these trauma for my case, my father was physically, sexually, emotionally, everything, every abuse that you can think of for years until I escaped from him when I was 13. And I was completely a straight A student, very athletic. Nobody knew what was going on because I kept it that way. And later on in my life, it affected my first marriage. It affected so much of mental breakdowns and panic attacks and PTSD. I had no idea why this was so significant. Now you're an adult, Jamie. I know you had maybe therapy sessions and understanding of this um, maybe disconnect or extreme responsibility that you have to carry on your shoulders since nine years old. How is it affecting your adult life? Well, I, I feel lucky. I feel lucky in that I was able to, I, I didn't really see a therapist until just the last year, honestly. But I feel really lucky that I've had really good 
friends in in my you know late teens and adulthood um, who I've been able to pour everything out into and I feel like that helped me tremendously in keeping me in a, in a straight and narrow path. Um, and, you know, one of my biggest escapes when my father was sick was school. So spending every day, every single day, literally every single day after school for hours with TV production or newspaper or other clubs, just so I didn't have to go home. But the benefit of that was I, I did well in school and I, I had the grades and I was able to go to college and I had a laser focus, <laughs> you know, when it came to getting myself eventually out of Miami and, and jumping into a journalism career. Uh, and a lot of what I went through as a child and saw that was, you know, unexplainable is what drove me to journalism because things that happen in real life are much more interesting and amazing than fiction sometimes. But I feel like I was able to do pretty well for myself. Um, I feel like maybe I, I feel like my, my brothers struggled a whole lot more. Um, and I wish that I could have done something to, to help them. But as far as relationships, I think that coldness, that emotionlessness, and that not being able to understand other people's emotions and not being able to understand when people were shocked by things or saddened by things, like that stuck with me for a very, very, very long time. I'd say until recently, honestly. Um, and that I think stunted relationships and kept me from experiencing things to the extent that I wish I could have or with connecting with people um, in that way. So that's that's how I would say it affected me as an adult. It's very interesting to hear. And then thank you for being so vulnerable and honest um, to my question, because you know, like when you, grew up in this like the middle school counselor like instead of helping you like taking you as a threat that's just like second or third wave of shocks and that's what I went through as well I was called traitor mm -hmm. by teacher because my dad manipulated the teachers um and I was called ungrateful and it's just so much of misunderstanding children's rights and mental health which has which had never talked back in the days nowadays it's a completely different um league in america i don't know about japan but i feel had we had those resources and understanding of the mental health as an adult us who went through adversity or different kind of adversities, I think we wouldn't have not wasted, we would have better understanding about how brain works and then how to navigate the relationship that you mentioned or connecting the emotions. Those things are completely logically explainable mm -hmm. that had we had these resources at early ages and stuff.
Mm -hmm. And I and I do want to note that also that um, I just wanted to give a shout out to my uncle and my aunt Lazarus Indiana who took me and my brothers a lot of the time when my father was sick, and you know and and gave my my parents a break and gave us a little bit of a break and, and took us on trips and things like that and you know tried tried to help tried to help us and were there for us so just wanted to give a shout out to them too what's their names uh lazaro and diana hi lazaro and diana Hola. <laughs> thank you so jamie let's shift our conversation to tools that you use to overcome you kind of mentioned a little bit of high school life and journalism and all that stuff but i love this part of the question because typically when people say oh you know i heard that you went through x y and z challenges and adversities you should just get a therapist and then it's not that easy in massachusetts right now mass health not so many therapistic mass health so it's so hard to get therapists we've been on wait lists since 2019 <laughs> it's so bad and especially after the pandemic it is impossible to get therapists we're on a wait list for like six, seven agencies and stuff, and still it's hard. Mm -hmm. So what happened was this podcast, episode 50, all the guests pulled out their tools that they use to overcome unique tools and the methods. And then, you know, I actually use some of them. So how can you say what was the most helpful tools mm -hmm. that you use to overcome this adversity? Um, I'm going to borrow an expression from uh, my sensei, Michael Veltri, people and things. Um, but I, I also want to start when I was 11, 12 years old and I was suicidal and how I got through that alone. So I, I used visualization. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know that that's what it was called at the time. But it got to the point where I'm like, I want to hurt myself. And I, you know, and I sat down thinking about it. And I'm like, I remember being happy. You know what I mean? I, I, I want to be happy. And someone put it really well. I didn't want to die. I wanted my circumstances to die. And I started to realize that, you know, not in those pretty words, but I just realized that I wanted to be happy again because I remembered being happy and, you know, I didn't actually want to die. So at night when I was laying in my bed and I absolutely could not sleep and all of these terrible things were just assaulting my brain. And that's when it was, you know, the worst time to be in my brain. I started to imagine myself in a little ball. I started to imagine myself being in this little ball of light and trying to fill this ball with light. And in the beginning, this ball was really, really tiny. And I could just stay in there for a little bit of time, a little, you know, a few minutes at a time, a few minutes at a time. And in those few minutes, my brain was able to rest. I was able to rest and I was able to feel that light around me. And, you know, as I kept practicing that and practicing that, that little ball got stronger and it got bigger and it got brighter and, that was my saving grace. And I, I just focused on that ball all day long, all night long. I tried building that little ball of light in my mind so that I could hide inside of it. And I began visualizing it, you know, around myself, 
but also picturing all of those terrible things that I was afraid of, you know, that, that tortured me day and night, all those horrible dark thoughts. I imagine them all being outside the bubble and me being inside the bubble. And eventually I was able to laugh at them and mock them and those dark things started going away. And I was able to start sleeping through the night. I was able, like, I couldn't sleep with the light off. Like I had to have the light on, the TV on. And, you know, I was just so scared all the time. And I was able to turn off the TV. I was able to turn down, you know, turn off the light. I was able to turn off, down the volume or, you know, like I was finally able to start being a little bit more normal, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, getting getting that sleep because when you don't get that sleep it, it it compounds everything it makes everything you know your body starts to break down your mind starts to break down um so using visualization which i didn't even know what it was called back then just imagining myself in that little ball of light you know it got me through the worst and the darkest part of of that time in middle school and then after that um a little bit what we were talking about were people and things, especially in high school, was meeting those good core group of friends, meeting those people who were supportive and liked me and were there for me. You know, I didn't I didn't have time to deal with with drama or kids that were mean or anything like that. I just completely ignored it. But when I found those people that I was able to connect with, that was so amazing. And being able to confide in them and, you know, this incredible core group of friends that I have that all grew up to be incredible people who I still t keep in touch with, who are still, you know, my best friends today. Um, that was a blessing. That was, that was a huge part of it. And the things were the things that I poured my heart into to distract my mind. So I started writing stories. I've always written stories, Jury. Uh, you know, I remember wanting to be a writer I, when I was, I was writing stories before I could write. You know, I would tell my mother what words to write. She would write and I would draw the pictures. Like I was always drawing, writing stories. And then when I was going through the really tough stuff, I would write these like really dark stories, but really good stories. Like they were really well written. My, my math teacher read my stories in class because she loved them so much. Um, so I, I funneled into writing. I, I, I focused on my friends. I, you know, and the things that, that, I love, you know, and trying to hold on to that dancing, <laughs> music. Um, in, in Miami, it's ubiquitous. Everyone's dancing all the time. Um, and friends and things and falling into journalism and like making that my whole world and staying after school every single day um, and, and, and focusing on those things that make me feel good and are gonna do something good for myself. and. I, you know, I have trouble focusing sometimes or, or doing the best thing for myself. So what I try to do is I try to put good things in my path. I try to put good but scary things in front of me that I have to do, you know, and then just following through with, I, I try to lead myself, you know, I try to put things ahead of myself. Um, and then I'm like, well, I have no choice. I just have to do it. You know, and even though it's scary, it ends up being a really, really good thing. And that's that's what happened with, you know, I put myself on that airplane to Boston and I I I got my my first job in television right out of high school. At 18 years old, I was a writer at WSVN and that 
helped me transfer to WHDH in Boston. So when I got accepted to Emerson, I just made that jump to HDH uh, in Boston. So I was working full time and I was going to school full time. I worked nights and I went to school during the day. I don't know when I slept, but I, I paid my own rent. I paid as much of my tuition as I could, you know, and I just kept going and I just kept going and I just kept going um, because that's where I wanted to be and that's what I wanted to do. And eventually when I became an adult, I was able to put distance between myself and the past. I was able to put distant, physical distance between myself and Miami, you know, and everything that I went through. And I feel like I eventually got to a place where I was finally safe enough to process everything that I went through. And, you know, and I'm just really glad that I finally gotten to that place. Thank you so much for sharing the tools. And then it's incredible that 11, 12 years old, however you didn't know the word uh, visualization, but the way that you explained, I wish everybody can have access to that. Like, you know, basically shutting out all the naysayers and then creating the bubbles around you with the positivities and light. That is so powerful. And I could use that myself. And I wish somebody had told me, and I can't believe that you discovered that on your own. And then you were able to survive with that. And then I am sort of like you in the way that hard work, workaholic, whatever you call it, like super achievement. My counselor told me in my book, I get my adversity. Um, sometimes when people or kids go through trauma, adversity, that they go through extreme reaction, either, you know, do drugs, like addiction type of things, suicidal depression. But another aspect is a, is a super achievement, workaholic, just, you know, keep going. And that's kind of what I was doing until I didn't, to the point that I don't even know how to sit down. I don't even know how to sit on the couch. There's a couch, but I, I never sit on a couch. So because I was afraid that my father would punish me for not working hard and that's like the throughout the fear do something and i feel like i can't advocate for you in your case but you know you said you stayed longer at school and then kind of trying to escape from the reality or like miami myself japan like i don't want to live in japan because i had this whole trauma and then just don't want to go back there and then you know it just Sometimes removing yourself physically from the place sometimes yeah. works, and sometimes nothing is wrong with that. You yeah. know? No, I, I feel that one hundred percent. I feel like creating, going out, and 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 leaving home, and finally having a life of my own that I could build and just be alone in the world. I I don't know, like um. Uh, my 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 aunt was just asking me the other day like oh wasn't it so hard i'm like it was the easiest thing i ever did and it was the happiest i, I had ever been um because i was finally you know not 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 to say that i was being you know always tortured but i was finally free i was finally myself i was finally with myself and and able to just 
be with myself, you know what I mean? Able to be myself. Um, and that was very liberating. It was a very liberating thing, but no, I completely identify with the, uh, the overwork um, and the overachievement to either avoid the, the past or, you know, as, as just a reaction um, to that trauma, because that's, that's what I, I always did. I was always, you know, I always had like two or three jobs and I always had, um, you know, and I was talking to my husband when we were first dating, I would talk to him all night, then, then go to school day and then work, you know, all, you know, and then go to work and then talk to him. Like, I don't know. I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep, you know, and even today, <laughs> people are like, Oh, how do you do it? It's like, because I can't stop. <laughs> I can't stop myself. I have to always be doing something or else, you know, it catches up with you. It, it, it kind of catches up with you. Um, but you get to do fun and interesting things. And, you know, and the last bit is I wish jury, I wish that we had had that we had brought in a mental health professional for the whole family. And that is what I talk about in the book, but back then there was a lot of stigma around that. And, you know, it just wasn't in the cards. It can be such a tremendous help, you know, and I feel like it really would have helped my brothers. It would have helped everyone. It would have helped my mom. It would have helped all of us to, to, to bring in some professional mental help to support the family while they're going through, you know, this horribly tra traumatic thing and to give them the tools to survive and, or just the support that they need to know that they're not alone. You know, I feel like it could have made a really big difference. It could have made a really big difference, but ultimately do it for yourself. You know, don't wait for someone to help you because it's not, likely not going to happen. Don't wait, do it for yourself. And, you know, finally in my thirties, in my, you know, mid thirties, I'm finally talking to a therapist and like, making these incredible realizations like, oh, you know, that's why this and that's why that. And, you know, instead of blaming myself and still feeling guilty about things, you know, I'm finally realizing just the, the brain science behind trauma and a lot of that is so, such a relief. It, it's such a relief. So um, don't wait as long as I did. <laughs> it's basically uh, my advice. Well, thank you so much. Um, I have some comment and question um, from the live audience. Brian, uh, what does it mean to blissfully bloom? When do you feel the closet to it? To when? <laughs> he said, what does it mean to blissfully bloom? Blissfully bloom? Um. <laughs> when do you well, feel the closet to it? I, I, I feel like maybe the closest definition to blissfully blooming is that that time when I first got here, when I first got to Boston and I was, uh, you know, on my own and I was living in a slumlord's apartment, sleeping on a $50 mattress on the floor, but I was so free. You know what I mean? I, I, I did the, I was doing the job that I wanted. I was going to the school that I wanted in my free time. I was just walking around Boston and exploring the city and hanging out at Harvard. And, you know, it was blissful. I, I just feel like it was blissful. And I, I feel like I didn't even, I barely even spoke, you know, that, that first year that I was here, I was just experiencing and just being present and just being like, just, just feeling a weight off of 
my shoulders. So it's it's worth investing in yourself and, and finding that if you can. You know, you that story reminded me because I worked so hard. I was homeless and I came to America. I saved $30,000 when I was 19, 20, came to Boston by myself. And my first apartment, like I never lived in foreign country by myself. And I was 22 years old. I don't know, like, there was like no furniture, <laughs> but I was so happy. Yeah. I was proud. I was so proud. I'm there was no like, dining. Yeah, I was no, there was no dining table. No, <laughs> was, like, I had nothing. Yeah. I had these really terrible roommates <laughs> and I was sleeping on a mattress on the floor and I had a, a really, I got a TV for free, like one of those big box TVs with the bunny ear antennas and it was on a milk crate on the floor. And I, that was the happiest I, I had been, you know, in my whole life up until that point. So, you know, it's not about the things really. It's not, it's yeah. about being there for yourself. Yeah, it's a good question. Well, thank you so much, Jamie. So I want to close our pod, uh, podcast interview. First of all, thank you so much for being here, Jamie, and I congratulate you. I'm so proud of you. And then my last question is, a gift that came from the adversity. So how would you describe a gift that came from this adversity? Well, one gift was this, was Hope for the Hopeless, was the book that my father and I have uh, have written and is now being published. Um, and it's full of hope and inspiration and practical tools for anyone facing a dire diagnosis today. And um, it's available tomorrow on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and booklogics.com. Um, but this is one of the gifts that came out of that. And it's it's the entirety of our experiences that we went through, um, but they're teaching the lessons that we've learned through that adversity and everything that we just spoke about. And, you know, and it's all together right there in this book. And I'd say another gift from from that adversity was finding my incredible friends because I had to share everything that I went through, finding the, those, those people that could handle that and, and be there for me. I feel like it helped me to find the good people. It helped me to find those good friends um, who've, who've been there for me my whole, you know, my whole adult life. And I'm very, very grateful for that and thankful for that, for uh, Dwight and Randy and uh, Raph and everyone else. Um, so that, I feel was a, a wonderful gift too that that came out of this, um, and just I I wouldn't be where I am today, I wouldn't be who I am, and I wouldn't be where I am if I didn't go through everything that I went through. And what is your website or social media that people can follow or find more about you? Yeah, so you can find more information about me, about Hope for the Hopeless, um, and uh, and and everything else. Uh, at hopeforthehopelessbook.com. You can also buy the book there. Um, it has a blog and it also has, uh, most importantly, what I'm most proud of is a cancer resource um, that is packed with helpful websites, both holistic and mainstream, also recommended reading that can help anyone now, like right now, today, um, who's facing any kind of dire diagnosis or health crisis, um, it's, it's got a lot of powerful tools, stories, 
um, and, and links to places where you can get help, um, learn about clinical trials, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a great place. That's on my website. It's a cancer resources. So the website again is hopeforthehopelessbook.com. I'm also on Instagram at hope for the hopeless book. Basically, if you search hope for the hopeless book, uh, you will find me. Wonderful. So before you go, if there's a child whose parent is diagnosed with cancer and they're going through this at such a young age, or people whose family member is going through cancer, what is your advice? My advice is be honest, have open communication. Don't, you know, it's a very traumatic thing for everyone involved and nobody wants their child to suffer, but what's happening is already happening. And it's worse if you don't communicate with the child and let them know what's going on, you know, and have that, that open line of communication for feelings and, and, and everything to, to process. Bring in mental health professionals from day one. You know what I mean? Bring in those trauma counselors, bring in someone who's gonna support your family, support your kid, um, minimize the suffering, minimize the damage. You know, it's, it's an important part and it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to reach out, you know? Um, so open communication, honest communication with your kid um, and bringing in those, those helpers, bringing in those mental health professionals to be there for the whole family. Well, thank you, Jamie. And that is it for A Gift from Adversity podcast episode 50. Thank you so much for tuning in. And again, Jamie, thank you so much for coming to my podcast tonight. Thank you for having me, Jury. It was so great seeing you. And, and thank you again for everything that you did to help me get this book across the finish line. I, I, I owe you so much. And um, and my, my mother-in-law loves your book, A Gift from Adversity. So oh. she, just wanted, she just wanted to say hi and thank you. Hi. Well, thank you, again, Jamie. I think goodbye, everyone.